My name is Phil Gervasi, and you're listening to Telemetry Now. And uh, with me today is someone who I'd say has the, I'm going to say, second best taste in music of pretty much all time. Greg Villain is the Senior Director of Technical Product Management at Kentic. And today we're going to be talking about cord cutting and the impact that it's had on service provider networks. So let's get started. Okay, so Greg is an expert in service provider networking. He has worked on uh, with web scale companies, companies that you'd recognize. He's the president of France IX. The list goes on and on. And if you look at his LinkedIn profile, like I did earlier today, it's going to make you want to go study and just become a better engineer. So Greg, it really is great to have you on the uh, program today. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me here, Phil. And uh, also you mentioned previously that I was the your your second best music choice person. Like I now I want to know who the first one is. I gotta I gotta unseat him. Yeah, yeah. You're curious about that, huh? So you and I are similar in age. We grew up with a lot of the same bands. I know from having hung out with you, and uh, so we have that same foundation. So that's why you're right there alongside me as second best. But what what I saw was that you sort of tended toward the the hardcore punk seen from the grunge days, right? And then I sort of went in the direction of like progressive rock, progressive metal, but we have that same foundation. So that's why I still count you as second, a close second, but it is second best. We'll battle this offline, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, battle of the bands. So uh, before we get eyeball deep into this conversation, uh, I do want to ask you, what do you mean by cord cutting? I mean, I think I know what it means, but I want to hear it from you. And how long has that really been happening in the industry? Also, as far back as I can remember, in the early, I'd say, 2000s, we started seeing like, internet service providers going beyond the duty of just offering internet access, right? We started seeing what you'd call back then triple play offers, which mm -hmm. would be a bundle of internet access, voice over IP, and, and also IPTV. And so back then it was just using internet as a conduit to relay IPTV on a set-top box, but it was really what gave uh, what we now call OTT, over-the-top content provider, the idea that independent content from linear programming uh, could emerge and, uh, and, and be brought to end users this way. So that's cord cutting. It, it starts with voice over IP, really, and it, it is what it is now with user-generated video content, streaming services that have been multiplying over the recent years and so on, and gaming also, if you'd like. So uh, it's, a, it's a broad topic, but it's basically users progressively going away from what I'd call monopolistic uh, broadcast methods, such as radio or, or, or plain old Hertz TV. We had Hertz TV back home, not a lot of cable TV back then. I hear cable TV was a much bigger thing in the United States. And so yeah. it's moving away from that to online content, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense. I mean, that's what's been going on for the past 10, 15 years, like you said. But you're not casting that as a negative thing, right? Because, I mean, honestly, from a from a consumer perspective, like me personally, not from a business perspective or anything like that. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I, I'm consuming the content that I want. I'm getting it over high speed Internet. I I mean, I feel like it's a, a good thing for the consumer. I mean, do you oh, for, for the consumer, no doubt. I mean, yeah. The nonlinearity, if this is even a word of it, what people, I mean, it's the product people were waiting for, right? Uh, uh, instead of needing to be in front of your TV 
and at that specific hour to watch that specific program and not having choice based on your mood. You had a limited number of channels. Like back home when I was a kid, we had six channels and we had like one or two additional cable providers that were very expensive. But yeah. uh, the consumption methods demanded to change. The users wanted something else and something else appeared. Now, uh, people will make a case that it is starting to become just a multiple amount of streaming providers that are basically the early broadcasters that we had back then. This may or may not be true, but the, even the methods of producing content have changed accordingly and the formats have changed. So it's, it's, a, it's much more of a global change than just like transport over the internet. Yeah, absolutely. And my overall uh, spend, my bill or you know, total of bills for uh, my streaming services pretty much equates to what I would have been paying 15 years ago for cable. So I really feel like it's just a better version of that. For the this most. is where it's slightly different in the U.S. than in some other yeah. countries in Europe that I'll take as an example because okay. – Cable TV was not a huge thing. They were like, as I said before, uh, I come from France. And so uh, you'd have Canal Plus and, and not to name brands, um, but a few ones that you'd pay for. But most people would use free public TV or private TV, but using the public broadcast channels. And so you wouldn't have any spend per se, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, the, that kind of like exploding number of streaming providers is a diff is perceived differently in Europe than it is in the United States. In the United States, in the end, you're eventually paying the same amount that you used to pay on a on a regular cable plan, but you're just paying it over multiple services. Yeah, pretty much. And um, I mean, I, I didn't grow up with cable because my parents just didn't want to pay for it, uh, but all my friends did. And I, you know, I remember that uh, if the president was doing a speech that night, then forget it. You know, my four channels were all consumed with the speech and we were all bummed out because I wasn't able to watch Star Trek reruns, which is what I like to do at night. But, but what, if you add up all of the the bandwidth for each of those broadcasts in high def with high def audio, high def video. I mean, it's not a tremendous amount of bandwidth, but if you add that up in a particular region, a geographic region, that's a tremendous amount of bandwidth. So really where I want to go with this conversation now is what's been happening to the service providers? What's been its effect on service providers that are trying to deliver that same TV, movie, video content, but in a different, using a different medium? Here's how it used to work. Hertz and Air Broadcast had this bandwidth that was shared amongst a limited number of channels, and everybody was fine with that. Then came IPTV. But IPTV, you'd basically get the broadcast of the linear into your ISP network, and the ISP would encode it and then deliver it using multicast. Yeah. Yeah, nobody remembers that technology. <laughs> I, I, I could claim to be obsolete to the point that I know how multicast works. Yeah. But then multicast it through their network, so it'd be somewhat efficient because, I mean, it builds a tree and it tries to not distribute the same thing n times. Right now, if my neighbor watches, uh, we're both on Comcast, say, if my neighbor watches the same show as I am at the same time, it's being sent twice, right? And so it's a ubiquitous, HTTP as a, as a transport for TV or, or any video content is ubiquitous. That's for sure. It, it now the smallest devices, you probably your razor uses it, uh, your fridge uses it. So it's it's there everywhere to consume. But we've got that additional complexity where 
I'll be watching something on, on Netflix. My wife will be watching something else on Hulu and my son will be at the same time streaming something else on YouTube on his iPad. And so three people in the house will consume bandwidth from our ISP, which wasn't the case before. And so I remember back in a day, because uh, in, what was it? Around 2000 is when in France, uh, a local loop unbundling showed up. And basically what it meant was that the incumbent, uh, France Telecom by then, uh, would be uh, legally obligated to rent the copper pair to other telcos so that they could deliver services using DSL over that copper pair, right? And so when we started there, bandwidth was not the same orders of magnitude than, than they are now, right? It's uh, the early days of DSL, so it's like anything was sub 2 meg. And, and basically, the capacity planning we made to build these networks was based on statistical consumption. I clearly remember early on in the days of like early DSL in like, I'd say 2004 or something, the assumptions we made that was that a user would consume in average 150K per second. <laughs> and so to give you an idea, now you stream HD at above five megs per second, multiply that by the number of people in the house. And so, and, and bear in mind, infrastructure investments, they can't happen overnight because this is True. significant yeah. and you need to deploy stuff. There's actual gear that you need to put in the local loop. And, and depending on what your geographic footprint is, it's, it can be an insane amount of investment. And so on the one end, you've got the rise of OTT and everyone pushing their own content through a parallel channel to the others, right? And, and the fact that here's the thing, And I always boil it down to that. What type of internet access do you have currently at home? Uh, I get fiber to the house. So you get fiber to the house. So basically, in, in most countries in the world now, uh, you get one gig for like 50 bucks, right? Yeah. So one gig for 50 bucks is five cents a megabit per second, right? Mm -hmm. And so the price that you're internet service provider pays to access the internet is probably above that. And so it is a business of very, very thin margins. And back in a day, you had to keep a customer for at least five years to make it worth it. Oh, really? Okay. And so they're stuck between the increasing consumption and the, the uh, competition. In the US, you've got some kind of geographical local monopolies like... Yeah. In San Francisco, I will only have a choice between like two or three providers. But in some countries, they've made it so easy to switch from one to another, local loop unbundling uh, being one of the uh, vectors of it, that people can switch whenever they want. So you have to make sure that they stay. And that's the other problem, right? Yeah. I mean, I have three main providers in my area, plus uh, two or three smaller regional, which piggyback off the main ones anyway. Um, and I get constant uh, email and phone calls and oh, yeah. you know, having, you know, asking me to switch and giving me the introductory rates and stuff. So it sounds like one of the impacts that this change in how we consume media affects service providers is that they had to change their business model. How can we, how can we now deliver all this media? This is what you know, customers want. This is what people want. How can we deliver that and still turn a profit considering that, like you said, the uh, margins are razor thin? Uh, not to, I mean, the, the only thing, the only question I have here though is 
the reality is, I'm, I'm trying to do the math in my head, it really isn't that much bandwidth to my house. I mean, if I have five people all streaming at the same time, which doesn't really happen. I mean, if we're all streaming a movie, uh, as a dad, I'm going to be upset. Like, we all need to be sitting in the family room together. But but even then, what is that, 25 megs? That's, I mean, that's not a huge amount. Well, that, that's for what you're looking at. But, uh, like, now a lot of providers will pre-cache software, right? Mm-hmm. You probably have your iPhone set to auto-update, which would be the safe thing to do nowadays. Yeah, and so yeah. it'll get an update. And then your Macs locally, if you have Macs, will do that too. And your Windows setups will prefetch stuff. So, and, and your Xbox will start downloading game updates offline. And so yeah. it's funny because working on the on that OTT detection product that I, that I, that I work on at Kentic, like I have to look at my internet traffic like closer than I, than I did used to. And the amount of stuff that's constantly pulling from the internet is insane. And, and I don't mm. always remember it, right? So it, okay. there's, yeah. there's a sunken part of the iceberg here. So is providing residential consumer-grade internet almost like a lost leader for service providers today? I would think it is. I don't, I'm, I'm not a, a macroeconomy expert, right? <laughs> but uh, it seems to be a business of very thin margins. Because, I mean, I mentioned the price of bandwidth, but there's the price to operate such a network. And that price, I would think, increases with the footprint that you'd have and the number of metros that you serve internet access in. So it makes it makes these matters worse. But to to give you a scale, like uh, an internet service provider such as Comcast has a network pretty much as big as any transit tier one provider in the United States, to the extent that they've leveraged their eyeballs to become a seller of bandwidth because they have built such a huge network, they need to profit from it. It makes a lot of sense. And so how does that compare to business customers and the kind of legacy connections that are still very, very uh, expensive, you know, getting a, a high bandwidth MPLS circuit to my office building, for example, things like that. And this is where things uh, started to get interesting. So I dabbled a little bit in the enterprise business early on. In the first company that I worked at, I did a lot of uh, uh, pre-sales engineering on, on DSL specific and MPLS VPNs. Yeah. And and you could see by, back then that building an MPLS VPN, you would price inter- the internet access part of it a whole lot higher than residential to the extent that people considered, well, I'm just going to buy routers and do it myself instead of renting a service from a service provider, right? And so this is how large companies ended up having, they were like basically two paths. One would contract everyone for everything, and that's a very... French and European way to do, to go through a company to contract a huge MPL and VPS. But some smaller companies that were a little bit crafty would would buy their own gear and make their own tunnels themselves because internet access prices kept decreasing back then. And so you could use that commodity as a building block for, for a VPN. Yeah, and that's something that I mean I'm seeing, yeah, on the residential side, but you know, as a network engineer having worked with large enterprises, bandwidth has just become incredibly cheap, but it's not just cheap. The quality of the connections are better than they have been. You know, I mean, the the fact that I don't I don't really need a private MPLS circuit like I used to, you know, for the quality sake because the internet is, I mean, I I make Zoom calls all the time and it's just HTTPS and it's over the public internet from my house or from a business. 
and it's just fine. Like I can see everybody and we had the technology and the error correction built in to, to accommodate any kind of latency and well, you know, minimal latency, that sort of thing. So I feel like the changes that are occurring in service providers aren't necessarily as technical. Okay. So they're not going to be using uh, multicast as much, but more in like, how do I strategize around this? How do we charge differently? Um, how do we change our backbone infrastructure to accommodate? So, you know, uh, the advent of CDNs, I think you started to elude that, right? How, you, how do you build an over-the-top OTT network? And, um, and then I, w- what is it called when you have those locations? Like, um, you know, like an Amazon or a Netflix would have in the local regional COs, they would have, you know, their stack of content servers. I, I don't know precisely how this works in the US, but CEOs would be highly regulated because belonging to the incumbent. And usually in the CEOs, you'll have all the telcos that want to have access to the local loop that used to be operated by the incumbent or by the local incumbent. So quick flashback in history. CDNs were born with Yahoo. Akamai was born with Yahoo, to give you an example, okay. the, very, the very first CDN. And they built it for Yahoo, and they were like, oh, we can probably make a business out of it. So basically, back in the day, it was all squids, uh, squid proxies all over the place. And, and this is when the advent of global content happened. Usually, you'd have local content, and it didn't really matter from where it was distributed, because eventually, it was, de- it was meant to be consumed locally, right? But th- with the rise of... Ad- figure this would be around 2005 or something, the rise of YouTube was the game changer here. You had to deliver content from all over the place, right? Yeah. Your, your audience was from the United States to Seoul, Korea. And so you couldn't just rely on connectivity from your local data center to distribute it. I mean, online video is tolerant. It's a, it's a fairly, it, it, it can have, as long as you have enough bandwidth, it can have long uh, latencies. It doesn't really matter, but still you'd have to somehow, somehow deliver it uh, locally. And so this is when they started to build pops mm-hmm. in ISP, uh, near ISP's network. So usually in uh, data centers where there's a lot of other uh, ISPs to connect with, right? And they would directly connect with them. So they'd have their servers in that data center and they would interconnect directly with the local ISPs or through an internet exchange uh, uh, peering fabric. And then the next step was we can reach further towards the last mile and help these ISPs. Because think of it, if I'm a content provider and I'm blasting content throughout the place, right? I need to help the eyeballs distribute my content because if I don't, their users are going to get bad quality and they're just not going to use my service. And so I need to meet them further uh, in the middle of the road. And so the idea came up and Akamai pretty much started that of embedding caches within the ISP's network. So they'd put caches in your ISP's network and uh, Akamai, for instance, is a, is a commercial CDN, so they have multiple content customers uh, uh, that are located on their cache on the edge. And it would have a distributed edge between their own facilities and the facilities of the ISPs that would agree to have these caches. And then like, large content providers thought, well, you know what? I can probably be Akamai for myself. And this is what we did over at Netflix back in the day. This is what I did at Dailymotion initially. And this is what I did at, at Netflix back in the day when we started helping out these eyeball ISPs, broadband 
providers save bandwidth by offering them, literally offering servers to put in their uh, in their uh, own networks. Yeah. And while we still paid for the servers, it was still very much worth it for us to do that. And for them, because the quality would be better and they would save a lot of cost of upstream. Oh, sure. And and from a service provider's perspective, whether it's regional or, or very large, national or international, I mean, you're talking about, as far as consumption of your own resources, you're talking about a unicast or a small subset of multicast to a region, to those pops. And then from there, those can multicast or unicast, whatever, out to the uh, individual homes and businesses, things like that. So it does change the nature of how we're going to route traffic and how bandwidth is consumed on the uh, the service, service provider's network itself. So where do you think we're going next? I mean, as far as service providers, their relationship with their customers and the way the landscape looks. So that's, and every time I've made, uh, I've made like- Good question, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah, no, it, it definitely is because uh, uh, I don't think that I have a valid answer for that. First off, streamlining the way uh, internet service providers, uh, broadband uh, internet service provider, uh, streamlining the way they produce a lot of these uh, uh, internet accesses. There was, there's always been some amount of vendor lock-in, uh, much less in a in a broadband industry. You would you could switch pieces of your backbone to other providers from one contract to another, and so on and so forth. But I think. I've seen it happen uh, with providers of large scale that are slowly moving towards automating their production mechanisms and automating, uh, changing, switching towards programmable programmable routing that uses kind of like white box gear out there. And I know as a gearhead, it might be a topic of interest to you. Mm -hmm. I've yeah. seen the rise of, of companies where back in the day, if you'd come up with a business with a with a, an engineering uh, plan that would not include either Cisco or Juniper or there were very few ones back in the day, uh, yeah. uh, people would kind of frown at you. But now it's like, I think I recently saw that AT and T is redoing their entire backbone using uh, one of these recent uh, software defined network services. Uh, what's their name? DriveNets, I think. DriveNets, okay. And I've yeah. I've heard like. Uh, them hiring like there's no tomorrow. So I think there's a massive evolution of the service provider industry towards programmable networks. And I think that one is a very interesting one because it's going to fundamentally change the shape of network engineering in the years to come. Yeah. I mean, in my experience in enterprise, in the enterprise space, it is much more heavily vendor lock-in because of yeah. whether it's politics uh, really good salespeople taking out the CIO to you know a state yeah. dinner. Whatever yeah. it happens to be, you have those shops that are only Cisco, only Juniper, only yeah. Aris in the data center, whatever, or anything but Cisco, whatever it happens to be. I haven't seen that as much in the service provider realm. I have I have in small regionals, like there's one in, in my area that is like 99% Cisco. But generally speaking, I don't see it as much. I see more of an openness to not necessarily white box, just non-major vendors, yeah. but sometimes white box. And I know, especially when you get into really large web scale or global enterprise that's almost like service provider-like, you, you want some of that um, disaggregation between your software and your hardware so you can have a programmable yeah. interface, not because it's cool and hipster networking, you know, the cool thing to do, but because you have no choice. You're not making any money unless you find ways to reduce your, your OPEX, and that's one way to do it. And I have to imagine 
we're going to only see more and more and more of that in the service provider space when margins are so, so, so thin. And, uh, and, the, and, the, and the demand is even greater. Like, for example, you know, I, I, when I was uh, working for VARS, I was selling like SD-WAN all the time. That was mm-hmm. the hot ticket. And people were not always getting rid of their MPLS because either it was cheap and so they kept it or they were locked into a contract. But that was the idea that we're just going to use the public internet because it's cheap and it's good. And so I think that there is a difference between enterprise and service provider networking in that sense, where the enterprise, I don't think it grabbed onto programmability and network automation as much as we thought it was five or seven years ago. The whole industry was talking about it. And I don't, I don't think they did quite as much as, as we thought it would. Obviously, there's exceptions, large organizations that have huge inf- – I get it. But your local – you know, your local company with a thousand employees, it's just, it, 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 I don't think it really happened. But at the service provider level, for sure, do you think that we're just going to see a greater acceptance of white box, white box switching and routing, um, open networking, that sort of thing, uh, as margins get more and more thin, yet the demand grows more and more? Definitely. Like, and, I, and I even see that it's a scale thing, I believe. Past a certain scale, it makes sense for you to yeah, invest right. into that. And 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 SPs have learned it from content providers that have become because of their scale of their user base, right? Like think Facebook with their wedge routers. Like Facebook runs on an entirely uh, wide box uh, gear. So does I remember already like in 2010 or something, Google was already relying on they would buy Junipers just for the gear and they would run their own stuff with MPLS oh, really? down to the server. Mm-hmm. And so interestingly enough. The service providers are absorbing uh, these trends from the very like web scale companies out there. And, and in turn, uh, kind of like it gets accepted. It gets in people's brains as CIOs start to get accepted of it. Think about how uh, Amazon made its way into the larger uh, uh, companies out there. It, it really was because the CIO kept hearing about, oh, like they do this thing very agile with like uh, that cloud provider and we've got our servers and and it takes forever like the act of repeating it over and over uh, uh, makes its way to the to the enterprise and so there's a uh i could say that staggered delay in in uh, uh, acceptance but it won't be long uh, till uh, uh, enterprises adopt it the same way they adopted using word processing and, and spreadsheets in the cloud like Back when I started working, like it was unthinkable, first off, from a technical standpoint. And then and then the next thing you know, like nobody wants to hear about software licenses anymore. Like it's all about SaaS. So it's it's inevitable, I think. And uh, and to some extent, uh, I've been involved in, in teaching uh, in university back home. And that's the one thing I wanted to teach network engineers is that don't get focused around what a certain vendor can do because in the end it's the best document in industry ever so you we're very lucky about that like the protocols are like explicitly documented everywhere it'll come a time where these functions will be software and you can and you can uh, and that was probably the one prediction that I was right about and so you have to a become a software engineer because being a, a zealot for this provider or this provider of, of gear is not going to help you all your career. 
And you're going to need to run networks. And running network is not logging on a router every day. And so be a software engineer as much as you're a network engineer. The protocols are clearly explained. If you care to read about them, you'll understand what, what they do and you'll use them. But this is, this is I think, what's going to change in the industry is the ability, uh, the, the, the type of profiles that are going to be required to run networks. Yeah. Yeah, there's um, uh, there there's a lot to say about the future of network engineering, which is a, a different a different podcast for sure. Uh, very interesting topic too. What does it take to be a network engineer going into 2023 into 2024? You know, that's that's uh, that's really neat. Maybe we'll have you on again and talk about that and uh, and focus on that. But right now, I you know we are we are at about time. Um, so I would like to say thank you, Greg, for coming on and sharing your experience, uh, your expertise. You have a lot of experience. I really value that. Thank you. And I got to say. It really is conversations like these that I that I love and uh, and I, I kind of miss because I'm not in the field every day installing networks, you know, like like I was years ago in the data center. So I do miss it. But anyway, it's been great, Greg. And uh, and if someone has a comment or question for you specifically, you directly, how can they find you online? I don't know if it, if if people do that, but they can just reach out to me uh, at Greg at Kentech. Uh, they can also find me on LinkedIn, Greg Villain. Uh, I'm on Twitter, but uh, I. I spend most of my time ranting on Twitter, so it might not be the best to follow me okay. there. Uh, gotcha. But that's about it. And and again, like if you dwell conferences such as Nanog or, or RIPE meetings or even the general meeting uh, for the French Sykes Internet Exchange, you may see me there. So just grab me and, and have a chat. I'd love to. And you can find me on Twitter at network underscore Phil. Search my name in LinkedIn, my blog, networkphil.com. Uh, you can also follow Telemetry Now on LinkedIn and Twitter. And uh, if you are interested in being a guest on Telemetry Now, or if you have an idea for an episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can always email us at telemetrynow at So until next time, bye-bye.